but they go further and further and further into economic slavery. Populism. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Long a force in American history. Whose property has been confiscated in its entirety, and whose altars in Christ have been desecrated. The dictionary defines populism as a political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people. When the concerns of foreigners take precedence over the needs of Americans, our government is betraying us and has become illegitimate. Who feel that their concerns are disregarded. We're thinking of having a Chicago Tea Party in July. (laughs) President Obama, are you listening? Who feel they're ignored by established elite groups. In left-wing populism, it goes to the economic elites. Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street. Wall Street. Wall Street. When we talk about wealth distribution, oh my goodness, can't talk about that. In cultural populism, it goes toward minorities. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Resentment is at the heart of this populist drive. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. Populism is also... To be closer to the people or closer to the popular will. The forgotten men and women of our country. So many of you felt like you've just simply been forgotten. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Welcome to an on-point special series, The Power of Populism. Because populism unifies the people by negativity. Its global reach. It's authoritarian danger. I am your voice. And it's democratic promise. Populism is what we desperately need, what we have to have, and what we can't have. Episode 2, Populism in the World's Largest Democracy. Pranab Bardhan is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of California, Berkeley, and author of 17 books, including his most recent called A World of Insecurity, Democratic Disenchantment in Rich and Poor Countries. Professor Bardhan, welcome to On Point. Thank you, Magna. So, global the global rise of populism. You write in your book that a third of the people on planet Earth currently live in countries that are becoming more autocratic, and only 4% of people in the world live in countries that are becoming more democratic. What's driving this seeming worldwide populist surge? Well, there are many forces that are working, and different people have different interpretations of those forces. Uh, Some people say that it's because of inequality, some, uh, in my book, I emphasize insecurity of different kinds, economic as well as cultural. And then other people will talk about other forces, uh, demographic, technological, and all, 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 all kinds of things. But there's something fundamental about democracy here. I mean, it's in the title of your book about disenchantment with democracy, no? Right, right. And the disenchantment of democracy um, is part of... Uh, Populism, at least in some interpretations of populism, is that when the strong leader tries to bypass the standard democratic processes, due process, for example, 
in order to do things quickly and decisively. Uh, at least that's a promise, a rather seductive promise, although in my judgment, ultimately vacuous promise. Uh, but that's the way of uh, bypassing or undercutting standard democratic procedures. So that's why um, people who go for these populist leaders are disenchanted with the rather slow, cumbrous, uh, but necessary uh, liberal uh, procedures of democracy. Okay, slow and cumbrous. Now, it depends on what nation you live in because the term slow can mean different things, right? right. I mean, sure. for for example, we will be focusing in detail on, on India this hour. There's a right. vast population of Indians for whom democracy uh, perhaps hasn't really changed their quality of life in a meaningful way ever. Yeah, yeah. So they think that the, the, the populist leaders are going to get things now which they have been missing um, for all these years. But I think that's that's a false promise, but that's what they're seduced by. Okay, so tell me a little bit more about your thesis that you have about, um, about inequality versus insecurity as drivers of populism in, in different places uh, and for different reasons in various nations. Right. Uh, all over the world, um, inequality has been rising, and in some countries it's uh, reached uh, grotesque levels. So there's an obvious reaction uh, to this rising inequality. In fact, uh, the Occupation Wall Street uh, movement was entirely focused on inequality. Countries like Chile in various countries, uh, other countries in Latin America, inequality has produced strong reaction. But I personally, and this is one of the main uh, themes in the book, I personally think while inequality is extremely important, uh, workers, the way the workers are moving toward um, uh, these uh, populist demagogues, uh, most often right-wing extreme uh, demagogues, uh, it is not just inequality. uh, Because, you know, inequality is a left-wing issue. The question is, why are people turning right instead of left? Um, so that if in, in order to understand that question, you have to grapple with cultural issues and, uh, and also general insecurity issues. In my book, I talk about both economic insecurity, like in job losses, uh, income losses, but also I talk about cultural insecurity. For example, um, immigration, immigrants, uh, rightly or wrongly, pose as a, a cultural threat to many uh, native uh, populations. Uh, similarly, uh, religious groups uh, quite often uh, become threats to each other or one another. Uh, and so these are cultural insecurities, and I want to emphasize both because, um, uh, and quite often, uh, one of the reasons the working classes are turning right rather than the left is that the left or the liberals are not uh, emphasizing these cultural issues. There, uh, for example, in, in the United States, it's uh, things, abor- abortion or gay rights or gun, gun rights, etc. exercise um, a lot of workers, uh, socially conservative workers, even though on economic issues, they may be uh, on the, uh, on, uh, in, in line with the, uh, with the left, uh, liberals, on min- minimum uh, wage, 
on health uh, right. plans, etc. But it's the cultural issues are quite important. Well, in fact, I would say in the United States, frequently the elite uh, political left oftentimes just dismisses the cultural issues outright exactly. and says, well, it's just sexism or racism or xenophobia, so therefore not worth taking seriously or engaging with. Uh, but we do want to focus on India. So let me bring into the conversation now Ashutosh Varshni. He's the director of the Saxena Center for Contemporary South Asia and the sole Goldman Professor of International Studies and the Social Sciences at Brown University, author of many books, including Battles Half Won, India's Improbable Democracy. Professor Varshni, welcome to On Point. Thank you, Magna. Okay, so this hour is really about uh, the rise of populism in what I've been calling the world's largest democracy. But as you well know, in Professor Bardhan's book, he, he writes that India used to be the world's largest democracy, but he would rather now describe it as an electoral autocracy. Would you agree or disagree with that? Uh, so uh, that's consistent with the... Uh... Pranab's claim is consistent with uh, what the Wiedem Institute in Gothenburg University, Sweden, now, now very widely noted, has said. I have made the claim thus far that India is not, a, India is ceasing to be a liberal democracy, but it is an electoral democracy. That was the claim thus far. But more recent writings, I'm suggesting that it's heading towards electoral autocracy, but it's not there. So it's a difference. It's a if I have a difference with Pranab, it's on degree rather than direction. Yeah. Okay, but so the direction would direction, be... Direction, if, for example, the next election in India is not competitive and opposition party leaders are put in jail, hmm. um, which has started happening, then we are heading towards an electoral autocracy. Okay. So, so right now, it's the BJP under Prime Minister Narendra Modi that's in power and has been for several years in India. But t uh, Professor Varshini, take a minute, though, and, and walk us back through uh, India's uh, modern history, because obviously... Um, you could say that it was a very vibrant, uh, popular uprising that led through to the overthrow of British colonialism. I don't know if you'd call that populism. Um, but then thereafter, uh, would the Congress parties rule uh, with Indira Gandhi? Was that a form of Indian populism? Yeah, so two points here. One, the anti-colonial movements uh, may or may not be populist. India's was not because it led to an institutional design or a constitution which had liberal oversight over politicians. So, for example, the judiciary was independent. For example, the press was independent. For example, civil society associations, independent civil society associations could be formed and could freely exercise uh, their choices. So all of that is very consistent with the liberal democratic polity, which India had mm. um, the first burst of populism at the national level was left-wing populism, actually, not right-wing populism, which was under Mrs. Gandhi, uh, 1975 to 77, when she suspended the constitution, even while claiming that she represented the popular will. Mm. And her claim was more, of, more or less like the Latin American left populism, which is banish poverty. And the real people of India are the poor people who are a majority of Indians and there, the, the abolition of poverty is, is uh, the enemy of that drive was the elite of India, including the political elite and, of course, the economic elite. And so her attack on the elites of India 
for the sake of the poor people of India, on behalf of the poor people of India, was the left-wing populism. She also attacked the judiciary, uh-huh. attacked the bureaucracy, attacked the press. Now the attack is on the right-wing side. From the right-wing yeah. side, with Prime Minister Modi. Correct. Okay. So when we come back, we're going to talk more about uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi with a former member of his cabinet. And then we'll explore further about whether this form of populism in India right now is um, serving the country or headed towards autocracy. So stand by. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point, and this is episode two of our special series, The Power of Populism. And today, we're talking about populism in the world's largest democracy, India. Now, India is a particularly interesting example of the power of populism. Its very existence as an independent nation was brought about by a kind of charismatic populism led by Mahatma Gandhi that overthrew British colonial rule. Then came populism via India's Congress Party, And more recently, another distinctly different version under current Prime Minister Narendra Modi and the Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP. India is undergoing a profound social and economic change. A billion of its citizens are already politically empowered. That was Modi speaking before a joint session of the United States Congress in 2016. Arvind Panagaria was part of the Modi government at that time. He was an early member of Modi's cabinet from 2015 to 2017. So I sat on numerous, numerous meetings with the prime minister. And uh, when I needed to have discussions with him uh, alone, one-on-one, then I would go and have one-on-one discussions with him. Panagaria says he was an unusual choice for Modi's cabinet because... The general, you know, uh, intellectual environment uh, in India is very anti-BJP. And Panagaria is an intellectual. He's a renowned economist, an expert on free trade, who's worked for the World Bank, International Monetary Fund, and the World Trade Organization. But perhaps crucially, Panagaria is not an intellectual living in India. He's lived in the United States for 40 years and is a professor at Columbia University. In Modi's cabinet, Panagaria served as vice chair of the National Institution for Transforming India. Its mission? 
craft economic policies to speed India's development from the ground up. We helped with policies in, in different areas. We also produced a three-year action agenda uh, for the country. My to-do list is long and ambitious. Here's Modi again at that joint session of the U.S. Congress in 2016. A vibrant rural economy, a roof over each head, and electricity for all households. Have a broadband for a billion and connect our villages to the digital world. Modi had reason to believe in the possibility of transformational growth in India because he'd done it in the Indian state of Gujarat, where Modi was the head of state government for 13 years, from 2001 to 2014. In that period, Gujarat's economy grew dramatically, and Arvind Panagaria, who was still in the U.S. at the time, took notice. I was studying the Gujarat economy, and a lot of what was being written, uh, trashing the economic performance of the Gujarat, you know, was completely uh, uh, bogus. Expert opinion of Gujarat's economic performance under Modi is deeply divided. Some analysts point to the state's stagnant position on various human welfare indices. Almost half of Gujarati children under five remained malnourished. The state's spending on healthcare declined. Female literacy and infant mortality were unchanged. Panagaria points to a different data set. Gujarat's GDP grew 10% under Modi. The World Bank named it the number one Indian state for ease of doing business. And Modi ushered in tax breaks that attracted billions of investment dollars. And that's why, when Modi became India's prime minister in 2014, Arvind Panagaria accepted the cabinet invitation. He supported Modi's economic ambitions for India, even if he had reservations about Modi's politics, specifically the prime minister's personal history with right-wing Hindu nationalist groups. And I did many interviews, and one of the interviews, you know, there's a long, one full page in the Economic Times, where after everything, last question the reporter asked us was, are you impressed with Modi? And I was hesitant to say yes. So what I did was to say yes with his economic policies, because I did not want to give an implicit nod to his political, uh, um, as I understood at the time. That time was the aftermath of murders, looting, rapes, and riots that seized Gujarat in 2002 under Narendra Modi's rule. The streets have become a battleground. The grief and anger at yesterday's murders has boiled over into violence, looting, and religious hatred. On February 27, 2002, 59 Hindu pilgrims were trapped on a train and killed in a horrific fire at Godra Station in Gujarat. The cause of the fire was disputed, but at the time, Muslims were blamed. The next day, Modi, leading the Gujarat state government, said, quote, people were mercilessly massacred in a railway carriage by wicked people. Modi called for peace and self-discipline, but he also called the fire, quote, a crime that cannot be forgiven. Riots exploded in Gujarati cities. We saw policemen just standing by, watching what was happening, but doing nothing to try to stop it. One official parliamentary report found that more than a 1,000 people were killed in the riots, almost 80% of them Muslim. 
Other reports put that number closer to 2,000. A secret British diplomatic assessment referred to the riots as a pogrom, akin to organized ethnic cleansing. Human rights organizations found evidence of the mass rape and murder of Muslim women and children. Modi was accused of condoning the attacks and failing to control the violence. The United States even revoked Modi's diplomatic visa in 2005. But Modi consistently maintained his innocence, as he did in this interview with the BBC's Jill McGivering in late 2002. Some people have been accusing your government of not doing enough to stop this, of not protecting Muslims even now. These are also false propaganda made by our opponents. And you are also a captive of this false propaganda. And the independent reports that have already been published into what has happened. They have no right to talk about the internal matter of any government. If they have done, they have done wrong. Some would say it is a human right or is a general please, international please interest. Please don't try to preach us the human rights. We know what the human rights are. You Britishers should not preach us the human rights. When you look back over the last month, You've been the leader of this state through a very difficult period. Do you think there's anything that you should have done differently? Yes. One area where I was uh, very, very weak, and that was how to handle the media. Dozens of investigations, and years later, former cabinet member Arvind Panagaria says the Gujarat riots continue to hound Modi's reputation. The issue keeps boiling. At least that's... If I look at the policies, I see no discrimination whatsoever. This is not an issue. Now, discrimination against Muslims, you would see in the police. But that has nothing to do with the BJP. That has to do with the police itself. But Panagaria says for him, questions about Modi's rule were conclusively settled in 2012, when the Indian Supreme Court's special investigative team issued a 500-page report stating it could find no evidence against Modi and cleared him of responsibility for the riots. I kept reading the bloody thing. It was a very long report uh, for, for three or four days. And uh, I was absolutely astonished. After that, my conscience was clear. I mean, I would not have actually gone to work for him in, in 2015 when I went, you know, if I had not read that report. Moreover, Panagaria believes it's the prime minister's economic policies that continue to animate his popular support among a broad swath of India's enormous electorate. You know, corporate profit tax rates in India have been extremely high. So that has now sort of been more or less replaced by a uniform 25% tax rate. But in general, I think, you know, one of the big things he has done to win the popular support is that he has done a lot of the rejigging of the uh, social expenditure schemes. And in particular, you know, he has evolved, uh, established a fantastic publicly funded digital infrastructure. Finally, we asked Panagaria what he thinks about Modi being compared to other populist leaders around the world, such as Viktor Orban in Hungary, or Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey, or even former President Donald Trump. Modi is a much more holistic prime minister. He has the ability to get things done on scale and at speed. So he believes in this kind of, you know, used to use the word in our meetings, you know, saturate, saturate. So, for example, electricity, every household must get. So he will cajole all the chief ministers, you know, well, you've got only 10, 10% households left. Why, why are you leaving these out? Get to 100%. He is an incredibly uh, articulate speaker. And when it comes to people, 
he would never come across as talking them down. I mean, everybody thinks that he is talking to me. Arvind Panagaria. He's a professor of Indian political economy at Columbia University and served in the administration of Prime Minister Narendra Modi in India from 2015 to 2017. Well, Pranab Bardhan and Ashutosh Varshni are with us here. And Professor Varshni, I would like to connect what we just heard about Prime Minister Modi to what you were saying earlier about the populism under Indira Gandhi's Congress party. Because you said then, in the 70s, there was the Banish Poverty Program. How does that link to uh, the areas of support or the, or the rise of Narendra Modi's popularity in India now? Well, the, there is uh, one sense in which uh, Arvind Panagari is right, uh, that he has also concentrated on, um, on the poor through uh, programs, social programs, uh, no doubt about that toilets, water, electricity, and bringing them into the digital infrastructure. That is true. Um, direct transfer of subsidies rather than through middlemen. So, uh, and the, um, But I don't think that's the reason for the rise. That's the reason for the continued popularity at this point. Mm. One reason, not but the I, only. But I think your, your, your um, scholarship shows that, in fact, uh, Modi's popularity is, in a sense, a reaction so Modi's popularity yeah. is a reaction to how um, the Congress government or Congress-based coalition for 10 years before him um, was um, uh, rightly accused of corruption, mm. widespread corruption, and was not delivering on even on uh, welfare, social welfare uh, with speed. Uh, that is true, though they had very inventive programs also. For example, the largest employment guarantee scheme of the world was run by the Congress-based uh, government. But they were not delivering on speed and corruption was a big issue. Governance was a big issue. Um, Modi, there is absolutely, even if the Supreme Court cleared Modi of what happened in Gujarat, mm -hmm. the appeal continues to be, as we show in our research, uh, the paper that uh, that came out recently continues to be very heavily based on what in India uh, uh, is called Hindu nationalism. Right. The idea that the Hindu majority of India, 80% of India, owns the nation and the minorities must, must accept Hindu primacy culturally, politically, and even legally. Mm. Right. Which is not part of India's constitution. According to India's constitution, all religious groups are equal, regardless of whether you are a minority religion or majority religion. Right. But the the clear uh, departure here from the earlier uh, sets of policies for, for decades and decades, the clear departure under Modi is on Hindu nationalism, not necessarily on attacking poverty. Maybe he's doing it better. Uh huh. Maybe you, he's doing it. He's doing it better. But but what is completely distinctive is Hindu nationalism. You've called religion the the master narrative of Indian politics. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So so uh, Pro Professor Bardhan, though, help us then connect this to what you were talking about earlier about inequality and insecurity being drivers of populism in countries around the world. I mean, in a sense, it seems like in in. India right now, we have both, right? We have, of course, the inequality of, you know, the 
many, many millions of deeply improv- impoverished Indians, we have the rise of the middle class, the, you know, the, the profound rise of the middle class in India. And do we also have a form of insecurity amongst uh, India's, you know, vast Hindu majority? Yes. Um, let me, uh, I've been listening to both uh, my friend uh, Ashu and, uh, and also my friend uh, Arvind uh, I disagree with Arvind uh, quite a bit um, uh, on the non-economic issues like uh, the Gujarat riot, etc., or even uh, Hindu, like extreme discrimination and, and why discrimination is a soft word. Quite often, lynching of Muslims, their houses being bulldozed, etc. Uh, if that's much worse than discrimination, so that's going on. Uh, And in fact, even the Supreme Court uh, report on Modi's uh, 2002 performance um, clears Arvind's conscience, but uh, many other people are still disturbed because even that Supreme Court uh, report has been challenged by many legal scholars. But let let me, since you asked me more about the economic issues, I find on economic policies, um, uh, there is more hype on the part of the present government than reality. Uh, first of all, some of these welfare policies, um, uh, the the government says as if they are doing it for the first time, they are actually continuation, as Ashu just indicated, the Rural Employment Guarantee, the Food Security Act. Even uh, uh, the leaders talk about the roof over every house. That's a continuation of a housing uh, scheme for the poor that's been going on. But uh, at, and at the same time, um, uh, Modi has introduced some new policies. But even there, uh, while I think there's been quite a bit of progress, but this kind of progress has been going on for some time. And the, many of the promises are, are turned out to be hoax. For example, he, he offered, uh, that's the 2014 uh, promise, was to give uh, 10 million, 20 million jobs. He went on talking about it. Job uh, unemployment is one of the hugest issues and that unemployment has become worse mm-hmm. uh, over the last nine, ten years. Uh, inequality is growing, inequality among households. Um, I have data for that. Uh, insecurity is difficult to uh, capture, but job insecurity is, is a very important uh, part of it. Even corruption, on which they accused um, uh, the Congress government before. Yes, the Congress government, there's a lot of corruption cases, although ultimately many of the legal cases didn't go much uh, anywhere. They were some of these people who were accused were released. Uh, But to me, it depends on what you mean by corruption. Modi's government is marked with what I would call crony oligarchy. Mm. And crony capitalism is another name for corrupt capitalism. Well, Professor Bardhan, if you could just hold on for for just a minute. We have to take a quick break and Professor Varshney, stand by as well, because this is really fascinating to me, you know, given the the, um, the, the, your economic analysis that you just laid out, Professor Bardhan, it makes me want to then understand more deeply the insecurity part of this picture and how that is driving populism in India, that religion being the master narrative, as uh, Professor Varshney talked about. So we'll do that when we come back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. 
From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and it's episode two of our special series, The Power of Populism. It's global reach, authoritarian danger, and democratic promise. And today we're talking about populism in India, the world's largest democracy. And I'm joined by Pranab Bardhan. He's distinguished professor emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley, and author of many books, including his latest, A World of Insecurity, Democratic Disenchantment in Rich and Poor Countries. And Ashutosh Varshney joins us as well. He's the director of the Saxena Center for Contemporary South Asia at Brown University and author of many books, including Battles Half Won. India's improbable democracy. Now, Professor Varshney, what I'd like to do for uh, the next minute or two is connect Professor Bardhan's thesis more directly to what we're seeing in India. Because, you know, remember he was talking about um, insecurity uh, and its various causes, immigration, um, uh, cultural tribalism, religious groups, etc. And how you had said that the distinguishing difference between uh, the populism in India under Modi versus the Congress party earlier, is the Hindu nationalist piece. So what I think we need help understanding is Hindus form 80% of India's 1.4 billion strong population. There are 960 million Hindus in India. But help us understand why many of them, even though they're the vast majority, in a sense do feel culturally insecure. Because, I mean, do we have to look back to partition because do many Hindus feel it, uh, that, in a sense, they lost their country and never fully regained it uh, in 1947? Yeah, let me put it to you this way. Partition is certainly very important um, in the evolution of um, Hindu consciousness. Um, and uh, precisely because at the time of partition, uh, India didn't turn towards a Hindu majoritarian state. Correct. But a state and a constitution that gave each religious group, including the Muslims, who formed, or some of whom formed, 67% of whom formed, um, uh, the state of Pakistan, an independent state of Pakistan carved out of British India. Mm -hmm. So for some of those Hindus, not all, some of those Hindus, the idea that India, even after the formation of Pakistan, became a country of religious equality as opposed to a country which gave Hindus primacy, as Muslims had in Pakistan, has certainly played a role in the evolution of consciousness of some Hindus. Well, I mean, one of those Hindu nationalists even was the assassin of Mahatma Gandhi. That's correct. And his, if you read his defense in the court, he says he could not understand 
why Mahatma Gandhi, the father of India, even after the formation of Pakistan, would say Muslims are fellow brothers. Hmm. So, so that that thread among yeah. some Hindus, among some, yeah. that has become bigger now. That, and why? The origin is and there. And why? Yeah. The, um, in a way, you can say that um, the alternative political possibilities, which were present in the form of, let's say, Congress Party and its politics, or some of the lower caste politics, etc. I think caste has to be brought in now. Uh-huh. So Hindu, the so-called Hindu majority, 80% of India, is very deeply divided among themselves into multiple castes. Yes. And so it was typically the upper caste feeling in some parts of India, not all, that Hindus were denied primacy even after 1947. Mm, mm. Okay, upper, upper caste. caste. Upper caste, yeah. caste mm. don't add up to more than 16 to 18% of India. At best, there's no caste census taken since 1931. At best, 20. But I think it's 16 to 18%. A substantial chunk of them thought that that Hindu primacy should have uh, been the, ide- the ruling doctrine of India. Mm. In fact, the killer of Mahatma Gandhi himself came from Brahmin caste in in the state of Maharashtra. But I'm not saying all Brahmins felt this way. No. Right, right. But some upper caste felt uh, this way. And then by the time it was late 1960s and 1970s, lower caste parties started emerging. Mm -hmm. And in South India, they had emerged earlier. And for them, the issue was not Hindu versus Muslim. The issue was upper caste versus versus lower lower caste. caste. Okay. Which which impeded the formation of a united Hindu community. Okay. Ah, so internal divisions as well. Caste-based divisions. I see. Which can feed into insecurities of various kinds. In a Hindu majority country, Hindus are divided and Hindus cannot rule. Right. That can could I, be the source of insecurity. Yeah. Can, can Professor Bardhan, please go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Can I add something to this? Yeah. I agree with that. And but also I want to add there has also been a sense of manufactured victimhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many middle-class, low-middle-class, uh, even the middle caste sometimes uh, d- d- say that the Muslim fertility rate being much higher, uh, very, very soon they are going to outnumber us, which is, of course, ridiculous. Uh, uh, fertility rates are on average higher in Muslim, but compare the Muslim fertility rate in Kerala, where the, it's much lower than the Hindu fertility or Hindu woman's fertility rate in the uh, in Uttar Pradesh. Uh, so essentially, because Kerala, the Muslim woman is more educated than the Hindu woman in in average Hindu woman in Uttar Pradesh. So it's the mother's education which is the primary determinant of fertility, not religion, but this this victimhood that they're going to outnumber us is very similar to the great replacement theory of the right wing uh, in Europe as well as the United States. So that's, I would add that too, that there's a false sense that the Muslims someday are going to outnumber this huge majority of Hindus. Uh, so Professor Bardhan then, um, I'm glad you mentioned some echoes that you, between India and the United States because oh, I, Europe too, I, uh, and Europe because well, I am hearing them strongly as well. So, would you say that? I mean, pr- right now, Prime Minister Modi is wildly popular in India, right? I mean, I was yes. looking at some recent uh, polling numbers, and he's got what seventy-eight to eighty percent approval rate. Um, so, is he has is, has he somehow um, 
combined the two forms of uh, the, the inequality and insecurity concerns. Because, you know, as you both mentioned earlier, he, he says he has economic development programs that should reach all the way down to the level of the poorest Indian, the poorest farmer. Uh, under, under his regime, inequality, both household inequality and corporate concentration have increased enormously. Well, we we have data for that. Yeah, but but he but, says that he says yes, that. Of, what of I'm course. saying, and promises said, were he, made here in the United States as well, and not this, necessarily. This, this is what populists do. They, yeah, they hype uh, hype and seductive promises, ultimately uh, vac- vacuous promises. But let me mention something else, which is yeah. not often. Now, it is kind of assumed that the overwhelming majority of Hindus are with him. But if you look at the and and the popularity figures, uh, more than seventy percent. But if you look at the last so-called landslide election of 2019, what percentage of, uh, of the voters voted for BJP and therefore Modi? 37%. So 63% of the voters did not vote for Modi. Mm. And a majority, a large chunk of these 63% would be Hindus. So it is not true that he dominates the, 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 the term that's used. He's the empire of the Hindu heart. Yeah. Uh, that is the term that is used. No, the majority of Hindus did not vote for him. Could, could I add something to that, Meghna? So I'm glad Pranab has uh, mentioned the 2019 election where Modi got more seats than his party ever did. However, and also more votes than it ever did. But it 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 still boiled down to 37 point something, 37.3, I think, right, yeah. of India's vote. Um, now, in a first-past-the-post system, ah, right. a parliamentary system, mm-hmm. that can generate, a, a more, uh, 37% can generate 60% seats. It can, right? Uh, that's Canadian, that's British. In America, you will have to go 50% plus one, right? right? Because only two persons are left typically in, the, in a presidential context or in all, virtually all contexts. Unless you have an independent candidate emerging who's big, right? As Ross Perot was. And yeah. then Clinton came in with 43% of vote. Hmm. Um, now, uh, if you break it down, it is very revealing. If you break it down, uh, s- more than 70% of upper caste voted for Modi. Mm. M- about an estimated 45% of middle caste voted for Modi. And an estimated... Uh, 33% of Dalits at the bottom of the social hierarchy voted for Modi. It says two things. One, that upper castes are still his mainstay. Interesting. Proportionately speaking. However, it also says that somehow he's managed to convince the middle caste who are huge, that are huge that's a huge number. Right. And Dalits, the, the bottom is roughly the same in terms of numbers as the upper caste, yeah. right? So somehow he's convinced the middle caste and roughly half of their vote he's getting, 45%, less, 5% less than half, and one third of Dalit vote he's getting. Mm. Now, this is an entirely new development. The idea that Dalits could vote for a party that was called an upper caste-led party and which is still... Mm. Very upper caste in in its in its in its form in its uh, in its um, personnel, right? Yeah. So uh, so whether this will change in two thousand twenty four, we don't know. But one key element here is this: thirty seven percent will not generate more than sixty percent seats if the opposition gets united. Uh-huh. Oh, the sixty three percent vote yeah. that is split right now, how is it going to be organized by the opposition parties? Yeah. 
Okay. So, you know, uh, one of the things that we're trying to understand throughout the course of this series is, um, you know, what happens when um, a populist leader turns towards an anti-democratic thread, okay? And one of the things we learned in yesterday's episode was that there are some commonalities. Uh, the creation of, uh, uh, you know, enemies, the the sense of victimhood, as you were talking about, Professor Bardon, the attacks on the judiciary, the attacks on the media. So um, specifically regarding that in India, we heard something similar, that um, oftentimes the free press is enemy number one. I think every journalist in India is concerned about deteriorating press freedoms. So this is Raksha Kumar. She's a freelance journalist based in Mumbai. And she says that Prime Minister Modi is not the first Indian leader to try to control the press, but that his relationship with the media today is shaped by those Gujarat riots that we talked about that happened back in 2002. The English language media really took him head on and they asked him all the tough questions. And he famously walked out of interviews when he was asked about the violence that was perpetuated in his state under his watch. He, he in fact, admitted to the BBC uh, where he said, you know, the one mistake I made when violence was raging in my state was that I did not control the media. So in a way, he came to power in New Delhi as the prime minister you know, knowing fully well that he really needed to control the media. And by the way, he is doing that now because in January of this year, the BBC released a new documentary on the Gujarat riots and the Modi government banned the video from broadcast or social media in India. And then several weeks later, Indian tax officials staged a three-day raid of BBC offices in Mumbai and Delhi. Now, Kumar says journalists are facing what she calls a crisis of credibility, that Modi has succeeded in vilifying journalism and therefore the reporting has less of an impact on people. I don't know of any serious journalist around me who hasn't felt the difference personally. The top concern for us right now is we really don't have information. What I mean by that is that official sources do not talk to us. There aren't enough, you know, there isn't enough government data available in the public domain. So this is very much on the lines of, you know, the way um, China functions. If journalism is supposed to document the current happenings, then we are actually not doing it simply because we don't have enough information. So... How does she think Modi's approach has shaped the public's relationship with India's news media? If you look at populism in India, the populist governments, whether it is, you know, in the past Indira Gandhi government or the Narendra Modi government, they ride on the fact that they have popular consent to rule. And so any pillar, really, of democracy that is not democratically elected, for instance, the media is looked at with suspicion. That's Raksha Kumar, freelance journalist covering human rights issues in India. Now, we just have a few minutes left, uh, Professors Bardhan and Varshni. So I, I want to close with two questions. First to you, Professor Bardhan. You know, we talked about uh, Prime Minister Modi's approval ratings earlier, general approval ratings, 78%. And in, in our first episode of our show, we heard that... Um, you know, populists frequently claim to represent all the people, but only actually represent a small percentage. I mean, is that true in India? I mean, is is Modi an anti-democratic populist leader if his approval rating is actually so high? 
Uh, well, um, there are many histories full of examples of uh, dictators uh, whose popular ratings were quite high in this in terms of popular acclamation. Uh, in under these uh, these leaders. Quite often, even elections, I don't go, elections is not important, I don't, but at the same time, elections is the most important part of democracy. Democracy, essence of democracy, in my judgment, depends on those human rights, uh, uh, liberal rights, and so on. But anyway, the issue is that quite often these leaders turned elections into essentially referenda on their charisma mm-hmm. rather, rather than on performance. Uh, and the rhetoric, and, and, and Modi is a great orator. Uh, the rhetoric matters, so that's why the hype uh, carries the day. Uh, uh, so, and and in, ju- in my judgment, when you put hound your political opposition, when you threaten dissenters and threaten minorities, uh, Muslims, uh, that is clearly anti-democratic, clearly unconstitutional. Right. And, and uh, so... This is in line with most what more populist leaders do in many countries. Well, I want to ask Professor Varshney one last very quick question. You have a few seconds. Your, the title of your book is Battles Half Won. I mean, is, is India's democracy currently under threat, do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Because of? Because, because now even it's not even clear that the elections will be competitive let alone attacks on freedom of expression, let alone attacks on minorities, let alone attacks on civil society organizations. It's not even clear. At this point, 12 state governments of India out of 28 are by, run by non-BJP parties. 12 out of 28. It's not clear that this will hold. Ashutosh Varshney at Brown University and Pranab Bardhan at the University of California, Berkeley. Thank you both so very much. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.